Hello and welcome back to the Long History Shot. I'm Ranjit and you're listening to the third part in a mini series that traces the history of the Emperor Ashok. For those of you who missed out the first two episodes, let me quickly summarize what was covered in those stories. We talked about how Ashok's legacy of stone, which is the legacy of his edicts inscribed on various stone surfaces and beautifully crafted stone pillars has left behind a story even after 2300 years and we are today able to reconstruct ashok's story using a lot of material that's available in these stone scriptures or these inscriptions as well as the legends which were written a few hundred years after ashok's death and these legends were written both in india as well as sri lanka given that ashok was considered a very big contributor a very great benefactor of the buddhist sect the legends largely agree on the sequence of events and the characters and the circumstances in which ashok becomes a buddhist but there are certain differences which are also interesting to know interesting to understand if you are interested in the history of ashok So in the last episode I actually took you through the story of Ashok as told by the Indian legend the Ashok Avadan. Today's episode is going to talk about the story of Ashok as per the Sri Lankan chronicle known also as the Mahavansha. The Mahavansha is part of the Deepavansha or a continuation of the Deepavansha which is the chronicle covering all the rulers who existed on this island kingdom and in the context of one of the rulers whose name was devanam piya tissa or devanam piya tissa as they used to call him ashok's story also comes up and the reason is that devanam piya tissa is the one who's credited with starting buddhism or founding buddhism in a very big way in this island kingdom and to do so he takes help from ashok to bring some symbols of the buddha like his relics also a sapling of the bodhi tree and that gives authenticity to the beginnings of buddhism on this island but before we go into that let's try to see how the story of ashok begins in this sri lankan legend so the story of ashok actually begins with his grandfather chandragupta maurya and for the first time an ancient text related to ashok gives us also some insight into chandragupta maurya so this legend tells us that chandragupta maurya with the help of a very capable advisor named chanakya which most of you will recall from popular indian historical stories this chanakya is supposed to have helped chandragupta maurya to take over the kingdom of magadh and once they have done that together chandragupta rules for nearly 24 years on the throne of magadh he is succeeded by his son bindusar who rules for an equally long period he rules for 28 years on the throne of magadh and bindusar is said to have 16 wives which is not an impossibility in those times even in the medieval period you have references of kings having a very large number of wives so apparently bindusar had 16 wives and they bore him 101 sons now this number does sound as a bit of an exaggeration but perhaps what the buddhist chronicle wants to tell us is that bindusar had a fairly large number of sons who would become claimants to his throne as well 
So when Bindusar is struck by a mortal illness, Ashok, who is now a young prince and ruling the province of Ujjain, which is present-day Madhya Pradesh, he rushes back to the capital and he is encountered with his other brothers and other heirs to the throne and he wages a bloody war of fratricide with all of these brothers and kills all of them with the exception of one. And this brother, whose name is Tisha, he is also born of the same queen that Ashok is. So perhaps he spares his life given you know, their connection with the same mother. Once Ashok comes onto the throne, he is termed as Chanda Ashok or Cruel Ashok because of this violent act by which he gains access to the throne. And the wife of his eldest brother, Sumana, she runs away from Patliputra because she fears for the life of her unborn child as well, given that the child could be a natural successor to the eldest crown prince. She abandons the capital city and takes refuge in a small village to the east of the capital city. Here, her child grows up and becomes a young Buddhist monk named Nigrodha. This monk is important to the story because he is the same Buddhist monk who is passing by Ashok's palace when Ashok's glance falls upon him and just drawn towards this monk by the sheer personality that he possesses, Ashok invites him into the royal palace and he asks him to explain what is it that the Buddha has taught that so many people are following in and around Magadha and the northern parts of the subcontinent. That's when Nigrodha gives him a sermon in the Buddha's teachings and Ashok is very impressed with what he hears and he decides to enter the Buddhist sect himself. This decision has some consequences for the existing clergy or the existing religious advisors in the Mauryan household. These are the Brahmins and there are a whole 60,000 of them who are being uh, given patronage in the Mauryan household. And when Ashok decides that his coronation, which he has already delayed by almost four years, would have the presence of Buddhist monks, all the 60,000 Brahmins are evicted from the palace. Here again, the Buddhist chronicle is basically telling us that there was a change of hands where religion was concerned in the household. And while 60,000 or even the fact that they were evicted might be a bit of an exaggeration, uh, it's trying to tell us that there was a change in the royal faith. Now, Ashok's coronation happening four years after he actually takes over the throne tells us that there might have been some residual of a conflict uh, even before Ashok gains legitimate right to the throne. And when he decides to coronate himself, this is an event which the Buddhist legend, the Mahavamsha says, takes place about 218 years after the Buddha passing away. Ashok also inducts some of the other members of his household into Buddhism. By this time, Ashok has his son Mahendra, his daughter Sangamitra, his brother Tisha, whose life he had spared, and also his nephew Agni Brahma, who is now also the husband of his daughter Sangamitra, and their son Sumana. So all of these royal household or royal members of the household are inducted into the Buddhist faith. Mahindra, after a few years, in fact, 
chooses to also become a full-time Buddhist monk and instead of taking the place of his uncle, uh, the vice regent Tisha on the throne, he decides to also follow his uncle into the Buddhist faith. And so Ashok's entire family seems to have moved away from a very political space, the political uh, household to become monks and to become part of the Buddhist faith. And it so happens that the Sri Lankan king Devanam Piyatissa sent some emissaries, some envoys to meet Ashok in Pataliputra. And when they meet Ashok and they are greeted with all the due respect and they tell Ashok that the king of Sri Lanka desires that some relics of the Buddha, some symbols of the Buddha be also shared with the island kingdom so that they may institutionalize Buddhist faith in a proper way on the island. Enthused by this request, Ashok actually instructs his son Mahindra, who is now a Buddhist monk, to travel to Sri Lanka and induct the king and other people on this island into the Buddhist faith. Mahindra does so, but before he does that, he also visits his mother Devi, who is one of the earliest queens of Ashok, and Devi herself is dedicated to the Buddhist faith, and Mahindra visits her in the city of Vidisha. This is the city where Ashok is also supposed to have met her and gotten married to her. And when Ashok decides to move to the capital, Devi actually decides to stay back and her children accompany Ashok into Pataliputra. So Devi has stayed back in Vidisha for all these years and also created a very large monastery and a large Chaitya over there. And Mahendra meets her before traveling to Sri Lanka and with her blessings, he goes to the island of Sri Lanka. Here he inducts the king and 40,000 other members of the king's household as well as his administration and other men on the island into the Buddhist faith. The king further requests him to also do the same for the women on that island, to which Mahendra replies that only a senior Buddhist nun like Sangamitra herself could come and do so. Sangamitra follows Mahendra to Sri Lanka and she is credited with having brought a sapling of the Bodhi tree to the island. Both brother and sister convert a large number of people or help them enter the Buddhist faith and that's how Buddhism is said to have been founded on the island of Sri Lanka. Now the story of Ashok taking Buddhism to different parts of his own country and that of other rulers does not stop with Sri Lanka. In fact, uh, the Mahavamsha tells us that when Ashok decides to hold a very large Buddhist council, also known as the Third Buddhist Council, because there were two other councils which were held by the kings Ajat Shatru and Prasena Jit even before Ashok, when he decides to do that, his senior advisor from the Buddhist faith, whose name is also Tisha, he announces that now different missions would be sent to parts of the subcontinent and even beyond. He mentions a number of places, a number of locations. He names Gandahar, which is part of present-day Afghanistan. Of course, he names Sri Lanka. He also names Suvarnabhumi, which may correspond with some part of present-day Southeast Asia, like Thailand or could be parts of uh, Myanmar. He also talks about 
how in the northwestern parts of Ashok's uh, kingdom, where the Yavanas or the Greeks live, even their Buddhism would be taken. And as we know, Takshashila actually became a large center of Buddhism eventually and was also patronized by the Bactrian Greek kings later on. There's also a reference to Buddhism being taken to other uh, kingdoms or other parts of the kingdom, such as Aparantak, which is present-day Konkan. It also talks about Mahisha Mandal, which is present-day Mysore. It uh, refers to Vanavasi, which is present-day North Karnataka, and several other parts of the subcontinent. So, in all, Ashok seems like that ruler, seems like that patron who helped Buddhism spread far and wide. The last days of Ashok are also described in the Sri Lankan Chronicle, but they are ridden with conflict and intrigues that take place inside the household. After the death of his principal queen, Asandamitra, Ashok falls to the charms of a younger queen named Tisharakshita. This is very similar to what the Ashok Avadan also talks about Ashok in his later age. And uh, there's a great deal of similarity between the events as well. Very similar to what happens in the Ashok Avadan, Tisharakshita tries to kill or destroy the Bodhi tree even in the Mahavamsha. The king's last phase is shown as that of a very troubled emperor who's lost confidence in his household, who's faced with a lot of opposition from his administration. And four years after Tisharakshita tries uh, to destroy the Bodhi tree, Ashok is said to have passed away. And this is the 38th year of his rule as per the Mahavamsha. The Mahavamsha, interestingly, has given us so many dates and so many timelines. And they're all in relation to some large event like the Buddha's Nirvana, which helps historians to reconstruct the timeline of Ashok's life. And using the edicts, using the Mahavamsha and using the Ashok Avdana, what historians now have is a combined history of Ashok. But surprisingly, the Mahavamsha, like the Ashok Avdana, also does not mention the edicts. It does not mention the Kalinga War. And that raises a rather important question about why such large events would have been excluded from these legends. Both of the texts were compiled a few hundred years after Ashok's death, but they would have been carried out in verbal form uh, very likely by the Buddhist monks. While it's a severely long gap, uh, it tells us that Ashok's memory was still alive in northern India, at least amongst the Buddhist sect. And... Uh, Perhaps they had lost recognition of the script and that's why maybe the edicts could not have been read of the stone edicts, uh, the stone boulders where they were inscribed or the lofty stone pillars on which they were inscribed. That could be one possibility because like we discussed in the last episode, even one of the pillars of Ashok where Samudragupta has inscribed his own inscription uh, in the second century of the common era, he has not made any reference to Ashok or his own inscription, which probably is a telling uh, state of things where uh, Brahmi script was already out of circulation. If you have any views or any ideas 
uh, around this interesting omission please feel free to share that in the voice messages or the emails or facebook posts you know that you can email me at lhswithranjit@gmail.com in the next part of this series on ashok we will look at the content of his edicts that we have been referring to so far and also what these inscriptions have to say about ashok as a ruler as well as as an individual so time to say goodbye and see you soon keep listening keep exploring